Good morning, everyone. It's great to be here. Thank you for letting me come and stand here and be with you today. My name is Lucas Turner, and I'm on the staff at Grace Bible Church over in Colleen. And uh, I was contacted earlier this week and asked uh, about coming to preach with you today. And, and honestly, I, I accepted kind of quickly. I love my church. I, I love the church that my family is a part of, and, and I love the local church bodies that we've been a part of for the last several years. But I, but I love Christ's Bride, the, the capital C church, so much more. There, there is so much behind what it means to be a part of the new covenant community that we call a church that I could never really unpack here. But, but knowing that there was a church that needed to hear the word of God on, on, as they gathered as that new covenant community, it was easy. I, I wanted to be here. I wanted the chance to speak to you all today. And you know, when, when I started talking a little bit to some of the people on staff and a few others, it became pretty clear pretty quickly that, that Renewal Church ha- has a reputation of, of deep respect and care for God's word yeah. preached in and out every single Sunday. The, the sermon is of great value here, and, and that's great to hear because a sermon is very valuable when rightly offered to God's people. You know, today will be my, my best attempt at a sermon. Normally in my preparation week, uh, there, there's a little bit more time, but you know, you might call this a devotional or some sort of running commentary on, on a passage of scripture. But honestly, in the time we have, I just want to open up God's word, which he gave to us out of his overwhelming love for us, and to see the goodness and the beauty and the truth that lies within. So uh, if you want to go ahead and start turning, we'll be in Psalm 118 today, Psalm 118. And while you're turning there, I just want to acknowledge that, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a little weird that I'm here. I, I want to acknowledge that uh, this feels a little odd, um, and, and, and you're not alone in that. This has been a, a difficult and a hard week for, for several people out there. You know, uh, I, I was a soldier for several, several years, so there are Afghan, Afghanistan vets here or people in Afghanistan that have been hurting and, and in pain during this week. Um, there, there's been hurts and, and weird feelings and, and emotions in this church. We acknowledge that. And, and you might be here for the first time. You might be a first-time guest here, and, and you're carrying you know, griefs or pains or heartaches that, that no one here even knows about yet. That, that's okay. We, we all carry different baggage into worship. And, and I'm sure that beyond the normal and the big stressors of you know, death, disease, division, all those things that we all, all feel, you, know, you have personal burdens that, that haven't been shared with others here yet. And now you show up and there's, a whole, there's another change. There's another change to the routine. There's a, there's a new guy, someone you don't know, standing up here and, and, and you know, preaching in front of you. One more change to the routine. It feels like the regular leadership is, is missing or, or gone or different. And so there's just that feeling of uncertainty. I want to acknowledge that. But I also want to acknowledge that while I may not know what you're struggling with, I want you to know that, that I have been praying for, for you, uh, for myself, and for our time together. When our times are uncertain, it's so much more important for God's people to gather around the common hope that they have, that hope that they have in Jesus Christ himself. That just brings, brings me back time and time again to Jesus, the great high priest. So in Hebrews 4, it says that since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. And when you hear those weaknesses, think pains, emotions, hurts. He's, he's, he is able to sympathize with us, but he is uh, one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace for help, grace to help in time of need. We're going to be in Psalm 118 today, and, and it's really one of my favorite of any of the Psalms, really one of my favorite stretches of all of Scripture. It's such a unique reminder that we need today. 
And, and by we, I don't mean just those of us in this room this morning. By we, I mean every Christian living yesterday, today, and tomorrow. We need to cling to the truths that we find here. We're going to be in Psalm 118. So if you haven't turned there yet, here, here it is. So, it, and, and it usually helps uh, whenever you're you know, starting to build a sermon or a public speaking or something like that to try to craft a really unique and catchy title so it's easy to remember, right? So I'm going to go with something really awesome and way out there. The title and major idea for today is The Steadfast Love of a Good Lord. And you're probably looking at your first verse and being like, man, Lucas, don't break your brain on, on that one, right? But, I mean, think about that. Isn't that really the, the theme of this, of this entire psalm? And isn't that the, the main idea with, when it comes to Israel in the Old Testament? And isn't that really kind of one of the major threads that weaves its way throughout the entire Bible? I think, I think it is, and I think that this psalm, in a really condensed form, reminds us that God is not only some distant, disinterested God, but, but a covenant Lord in covenant relationship with a covenant people, and he is, he is good rather than being dis, distant or uh, disinterested in us. And, and his goodness is expressed in a steadfast love, a, a determined passion for his people. So if you take nothing else away from today, I just hope you will remember, Lord good and steadfast love in some way, shape, or form. If you, you can mix those up all you want, but if you'll have the basic idea of the steadfast love of a good Lord. So the first few verses that we see are some of the best in the entire psalm. So I'm going to start reading in uh, verse 1 in Psalm 118. It says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. So Hebrew Psalms are, are sort of a unique, kind of, they kind of have a different way of you know, numbering their verses. The Hebrew Bible numbers the Psalms just a little bit differently than our English Bibles do. So you, verse 1 of a Psalm serves as some sort of title that the original author might have tried to title that psalm. And, and look at this title. What a title it is. Oh, give thanks to the Lord our God, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. That's basically our sermon title, right? And, and for good reason. Look at each of the three basic sections of verse 1. God is our Lord. He is good. His is steadfast and endures forever. That, that's pretty straightforward, right? But as, as I was thinking, as I was kind of preparing to speak this week, I was reminded that each of those three ideas are some of the main problems that, that people have with being a Christian or, or people have with a problem they have with the Christian faith in general. You know, clearly, God is Lord. Many people struggle with the idea that someone other than themselves is in charge of their life and in control of what they do. Actually, let me rephrase that because by saying many people, I feel like we might have let ourselves off the hook. All of us, every one of us, struggle with the idea that we are not the God of our own lives. And that's what Christianity is all about. It's admitting that you aren't the Lord of your life and that God is. He is in absolute control of our situations and our, and, our, and our lives, no matter how crazy or how hectic or out of control they might be. And sometimes even in those moments, in, those, in the midst of an out-of-control season of life, we find that that's the perfect opportunity where we can turn to God and worship Him and see how He is the one moving in our lives rather than trying to rely on our own strength. So that's God as Lord. But you know, honestly, we can only feel comfortable relying on someone else completely with our entire lives if we also trust that that person somehow isn't a, a maniacal leader uh, behind, behind the wheel, 
right? That's why the second phrase is so important. God is both in control and he is good. We need to remind ourselves of that every single minute of every single day. When, when I talk to soldiers that are getting ready to deploy to a combat environment, I ask two basic questions of them if they tell me that they're a Christian. I ask first, I said, do you believe in a God who is not only sitting in heaven in all authority and glory and power, but who is actively present here in the world and working among his people and working among those who don't yet know him? They usually respond, yes. They're, they're saying God is Lord which is why I follow up with a crucial second question. Do you believe in all that honor and power and authority and control? He is also good. That is a crucial question for anyone to wrestle with and, and understand and, and come to a conclusion. So imagine how much more important it is for us to remind ourselves of that dual basic truth. God is God, meaning he is supreme in everything due to being the, the maker and the Lord of the universe. He gets to tell us what is right and wrong because he himself is the standard of right. And yet in all of that, he is intimate and he is approachable and he is good. So those are the first two parts. God is Lord and he is good. The last of the three phrases is the idea that the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. The word here for steadfast love is, is hesed. Has anyone ever heard of that, the, the hesed of the Lord? Well, that's, a, that's a Hebrew word that just carries all sorts of implications and connotations, but at its root is this idea of an intense love or a loving kindness. That is the sort of view that God has of his people. You know, so many of us struggle with the idea that God has to be continually pleased by our best attempt at being good so that he will somehow continue to love us. But you know what? That, that's got it completely backwards. God has shown you his loving kindness, an unchanging, passionate love for those that he calls his own. That love doesn't decrease or increase based on how good or bad you were today. You know, to make the love of God dependent on us is in some very small way to make God dependent on us, saying he has to react to us in order to show love. But we need to understand the hesed, the, the, the steadfast love, it's not going anywhere, and it's not, stay, it's not something we need to stay up at night wondering whether or not we still have. Rather, Christians are able to rest assured with true biblical assurance because we have a God who is Lord, we have a God who is good to his creation, and we have a God who has shown a specific and intense love for those who are his covenant people. The rest of this first section, verses 2 through 4, is basically a poetic introduction to the rest of the psalm. You know, it's kind of a cool way of showing how pervasive the idea should be that our God is Lord and his love endures forever. It's showing that a certain list of people should be some of the first ones to call upon a good Lord. You know, Israel, the house of Aaron. And then at the end, it's, it's literally anyone inside or outside of Israel to be able to praise God as Lord. There is no greater unifying cry throughout the world than those who call upon the name of our Lord. My question for us is, do we believe that today? I mean, it, it's so easy in, in a modern Western context to kind of isolate ourselves in our own little church bodies and just remove ourselves from the world because we admit the world is hard. It, it's hard to interact with and engage with in a faithful way. It's easy to say, you know what, I'm just, I'm a part of Israel or the house of Aaron, or, or today that might be, I'm part of, you know, a, a Baptist church, or I'm, I'm a part of, you know, our, our church is part of the Acts 29 network. It's very easy to wrap yourself around those kind of identities. And even worse, our tendency at times is to wrap ourselves around things that aren't biblically based at all. We say stuff like, 
I'm a Republican or I'm a Democrat before anything else, or I'm on this side or that side of masks and vaccines. I'm all about this view of homeschooling or, or a certain view of sexuality that may or may not agree with what the world or the Bible says. That, you know, there are some of us, even here today, uh, God be with them, who say that they're Dallas Cowboy fans. I'm, I'm sorry, that's a poor joke. I'm sorry. We, but on the side, will you pray for those people tonight? Um, I'm sorry. Easy shot. I'm sorry. But no, the bigger idea is our tendency is to tribalize. And it's, it's to try to find a unique identity that we can say is all our own. But this section is a great reminder of the fact that the greatest common denominator we share is God himself. There are to be no dividing lines among those who are in verse 4, those who fear the Lord. If you're familiar with what Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, it's, it's Jew, it's Greek, it's slave, it's free, it's man, it's woman. Nothing that segregates or tribalizes us here on earth is going to be able to divide those who are truly united in Christ. So this church today, how does that apply to you? We need you to know that regardless of the circumstances, high or low, you are not alone. This church is you know, what's called a lowercase c church, a, a local church body that is one of many parts of the global body of Christ, the capital C church, the universal church, the global uh, body of Christ. So because of that, you need to know that you're not alone in whatever seasons you're going through. I mean, me standing here is proof that other churches care about the gospel being proclaimed consistently and faithfully in churches, no matter the season. And that's kind of a trade-off, right? Because if we're struggling two years down the road, or if we're struggling next week, you as a church are able to, to come and lift us up and, and care for each other. That's what the body does. The body helps repair the body at, at times of, of hurt or trauma. So that's, that's our first section of this psalm. It's kind of both an introduction and a chorus. It's like you know starting off a really good song with, with the chorus or the best verses at first. But then we get to verse 5 where we start to see some of what led the author to writing in the first place, to depend on the, the good love or the... Or the a steadfast love of a good Lord. It's so true, right, that when we often turn to God, it's because the situation around us isn't good and things are starting to feel like they fall apart, right? And that's exactly what the author does here. Reading in verse 5, it says, Out of my distress I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. Every time I read this psalm, or or several more like it, it's it's so amazing to see how direct and how immediate our access to God is, like you see in verse 5 there. In the middle of our distress, at our lowest moments, we need to remind ourselves again and again that God has not withdrawn from us. He is not gone. He has not removed himself because of our situation. He hasn't left us to our own pity or to our own shame. He is there, and, and, and he is waiting to hear from us. Another way to kind of compare this to how astounding our God is, is when you think of how humans are, how we are left to our own devices, you know, and how we treat the powerful or the mighty. So, uh, you know, think about this, um, just 
regardless of your political affiliations, you know, who would you say right now is, logically speaking, the, the, the most important leader in our country? It's, it's the President of the United States, right? We have, we have given a lot of authority and power to that person. Well, now, continue this idea and think, how, what if you said one day, I just, I've had a really bad day, I've re- had a really hard time, and I want to go talk to the President about it and unload my fears and worries on him? Well, I can go ahead and tell you, try to drive down to uh, Washington, D.C., or I guess up to Washington, D.C., and see how far you get. I mean, we have done a very great job of isolating someone because of, of the weight and the power that they carry, and we, we do that time in and time out, regardless of who holds that office. You know, and that's not, it's not just a political thing. Think about it. The richer or the more famous someone gets, more often we, we hear news stories of how you know, beautiful their compound is or how great the fences are at their $50 million home so they could be isolated from someone. That's how humans treat power and, and glory and, and wealth. And think about that. The God who is infinitely more powerful is ready to hear from you at a moment's notice. Not only that, he wants to hear from you. He wants you to unload your fears, your pains, and your hurts on him because he knows that he is able to handle what you cannot on your own. And after hearing the Lord's response uh, in verse 5, look look at how the attitude of the stressed out and that worried author, the, the psalmist, begins to change. The Lord's response is enough to remind us of the fact that the Lord, our God, is on our team and our greatest help in life. The helper, that is a, a consistent word that you'll see in the New Testament regarding God, the Holy Spirit. He, he is the helper that has been sent to help God's people, right? And, and, you know, you've probably heard that common idea that we see in verse 6 of, you know, if God is for us, who can ever be against us, right? Where does that come from? That, that, that comes straight from Paul in Romans 8.31. And if you go look at that passage and you look what Paul is doing at the end of Romans 8, He's doing exactly what the author of the psalm is doing right here, which is telling the, the, the church in Rome of the everlasting love of the Lord. I want to jump ahead just a little bit. We're going to come back to verses 8 and 9, but look at verses 10 through 14. as It's kind of just restating in a group setting the stresses and the deliverances that the author sought. You know, the term all the nations is another way of saying that everyone every organization and everything around me felt like it was falling apart and yet somehow simultaneously attacking me. Look at that word, or that term, they surrounded me like bees. That's just great imagery of the panic of being surrounded by something awful that could hurt you. You know, I think a clear Central Texas corollary to that would be, I looked down at my feet and they were covered in fire ants, right? I mean, there's nothing worse than seeing your shoes or your bare feet or, you know, with a young kiddo, with your four-year-old's bare feet covered in fire ants, realizing the, the pain that is about to come that way. That, that feeling you might have going up the, the, the back of your neck or that discomfort you feel, that, that's what the author is trying to convey here. Being surrounded, being closed off, feeling claustrophobic, that is what it's like to try to face the world on your own. It's suffocating, which is why we continually need it to, le- to lean into the presence of God for that breath of life, that, that breath of fresh air to be able to uh, revive and continue to run after him. So I said I'd go back to them, and I will. Verses 8 and 9 are a really cool little bit of Hebrew poetry. And depending upon how you kind of count your chapters and verses throughout the Bible, um, there's a pretty good uh, idea that these are the middle two, numerically speaking, the middle two verses in the entire Bible. So it's like, hey, maybe this is a very important part, right? Now, when you study ancient Hebrew poetry kind of versus our modern poetry, there are quite a few differences in how the, you know, the authors would structure their lines, their, their rhythms, their meters. You know, rhyming is not very uh, a big deal for Hebrew authors. 
But look, this is a set of what's called parallel verses. And, and, and the only difference is one single word. You know, it says we're not told to put our trust in either mankind in general or even the very best, the cream of the crop, uh, humanity's royalty. You know, I think a pretty, pretty clear reason the author did that was because on the first side of this, verses 5 through 7, he's talking about kind of mankind in general. And then verses 10 through 14, he's talking more about, you know, princes and nation states. So he's showing that verses 8 and 9 are meant to be kind of a hinge. But actually, I think one of the key things when you're studying Hebrew poetry is that when a single word or maybe a short little phrase is what's changed in parallel verses, the focus is actually not on the word that changes, but on what doesn't change. So what doesn't change in, the, in these verses? What doesn't change is, is the basic idea that it is better to trust in the Lord than over anything else. God is worthy of our greatest faith and trust. That is something I think we so often miss today when we are talking about our faith in God and our, and our faith in Christ. You know, the way, the way that the word faith is often used today, it, it's kind of framed as like a, a shallow belief, you know, that has no real effect on a person's, you know, uh, life or outlook or worldview. It, it's sort of like this intellectual agreement where someone might just casually say, well, yeah, I believe in God, or yeah, I believe the Bible has, you know, good books, or, you know, yeah, you know, I believe... Uh, you know, the weather is nice today. I mean, it's, it's very shallow. But, but the biblical concept of faith is closely intertwined with the English word we use for trust. The, the word in Hebrew here has another idea of taking refuge underneath. So in most English translations, it's either trust or take refuge in. I think I know the ESV and the NIV are using trust, and, and we see why. You know, think about it like this, this idea of either head knowledge or functional trust. If I was outside at the park with my kiddos and, and saw that one of those strong sun, summer uh, thunderstorms was headed our way, you know, I would want to get under something solid and, and drive for protection, right? So I look over and I see there's a tree and there's a building. And, and I would say, well, I, I think that's a pretty easy choice, right? I'm going to go to the building. And, and it's not even, it's not just a, hey, I, I think or I have a feeling or I know that that building would be better, that roof over my head would provide more safety, it's, I'm willing to trust that. I'm willing to, to bet the dryness of my clothes and, and the, the misery of my kids on the idea that we will be better put in that building. And that's what we need to know. That, that, that's, that's what we need to see when our, our beliefs, our biblical beliefs, are able to shape what we practice. You know, we need to not only believe that God is a good Lord, we need to be willing to trust our entire lives with that truth. It's so much more than saying, I believe God exists. It's saying, there is a living God who loves me, who made me, and who wants me to live in a way that glorifies him and allows for my thriving. Contrary to what, contrary to what a very individualistic world thinks is good for us, I'm going to commit my life and obedience and service to him because his love has never wavered for me. You know, I not only believe in God, I, and I not only believe that he is good, but I'm willing to trust every bit of my life towards him. You know, on a less kind of hypothetical note or, you know, image, you know, I just want to say, you know, my wife and I, we had an experience of that this week. Uh, she's pregnant with, with our third baby and about halfway through, and uh, we've had two premature babies up to this point, and so that's something that we're always kind of concerned with. So we went in for a normal checkup, and, and uh, all of a sudden you see kind of some concern on the doctor's faces. You see some, some fear, some nerves, and they actually use the word concern, which is kind of a red flag. And before you know it, you know, she's kind of whisked away. I can't go because of the COVID protocols. And they're, they're monitoring her for a couple hours. They're saying, like, she might be in labor. And, you know, this is a 20-week-old baby. It was just a very clear moment of, you know, saying, whoa, 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 this is all too fast. This is out of control. 
we are not ready for this. This baby is not ready for this. I, I'm not ready for this. And, and that was just such a great reminder by, by my wife, by the nurses, by the doctors, by all this medical experience that the amount of control that I had over that situation was nothing. I could talk to my wife and I could pray. So thankfully, our, our baby did not arrive this week and, and we're still hoping for a Christmas baby, not a Labor Day baby. Um, but what a deep and, and sharp and personal reminder that the only strength I have is not my own. It's saying to God, God, I'm going to trust that whatever happens, God, your goodness and your lordship are not under threat here. You are worthy of my praise regardless of what happens. So what does that mean for you here today to trust in the concept that God is a benevolent king, a ruler in your life? Would, would, it, would it change or shape the way you live throughout your week? You know, I think some easy ways to kind of, kind of see where you're at in this is, is to ask yourself or maybe someone close to you, you know, whether or not you're reflecting that truth. You know, ask someone, am I someone who wants to be close to God by reading his word or by praying to him or sitting in silence so I can meditate on his scriptures? Uh, or maybe another person could tell you if you, you reflect a peaceful confidence that, that God is good and God will uh, to bring his people uh, to goodness. Uh, now, someone might tell you, yeah, you seem calm. You seem like you trust the Lord. And you know deep down on the inside, it's like, I'm a nervous wreck and I'm, I'm scared. I don't know what's happening. That, that, that's okay. We, we need to understand those, the differences. But we shouldn't be concerned so much about appearances, but about you know, true heart layer issues of, of functional trust when it comes to God's reign over all things and the goodness that he has shown to his creation. So if our first job is to worship God for who he is, a good Lord who loves his people steadfastly, we should then follow it up with functional trust, right? And I think the pattern of this song kind of continues the thought pattern that we as Christians should have today when, when it comes to trusting in God. We're, we're, the next thing or the, or the way that we can continually uh, remind ourselves is, is to remind ourselves of God's saving us, both individually as, as people and as persons or as, as, as a group, as his covenant people overall. I'm going to kind of pick up the pace and make sure we get through the rest of the psalm, uh, and we'll kind of see where there are some points uh, worth pausing on and discussing a little bit further. So in verse 14, it says, The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. So a little bit of context here, which is, is that verse 14 is a direct quote from Exodus chapter 15, where Moses is celebrating what God has done in rescuing Israel from the Egyptians. This is one of the first huge events of God's covenant people. And guess what it is? It's a moment of miraculous salvation. He saved the Jews from the destruction at the hands of the Egyptians through the parting of the Red Sea, allowing them to move through and then destroying the Egyptian army that was in pursuit after them. You know, when Moses spoke uh, these words for the first time in Exodus 15, I mean, their clothes were barely dry when Moses told Israel, God is our Savior. That salvation is just as fresh here as it is in Psalm 18, and it's just as fresh for us today, right? The question is whether or not we respond like they do here. You know, are we known for our glad songs of salvation in our, in our homes, in, in our tents? Or, or are we more concerned with how people see us versus how they see our God? This isn't meant to be a confrontation, but more of a challenge. God saved you. Be happy about it. 
right? The good news of salvation is meant to make us happy, joyful, confident, and grateful. Remind yourself of your salvation. Be amazed at it, and then go live like it's true. Tell people of how God is a good Lord and a loving Savior all at the same time. Look next at verse 17 and see what the psalmist says there. He, he's saying, God has given me new life. I shall live. In the New Testament, we see that it's a new birth that comes to us from God. And we, when we have that life, and it, it is a life that is oriented around God, we see that our task with that new life right there in verse 17 is to recount the deeds of the Lord, both to ourselves, we preach the gospel to ourselves, and to others, we preach the gospel to others. We need to continually remind ourselves of the fact that God, not us, God is the hero of our story. And we need to grow more comfortable in telling other people that as well. And I know sharing your faith, sharing the story of God, it, it's, it's awkward and it's, it's, it's weird at times, but we need to realize at a certain point, if we care for those people who don't yet know God in a meaningful way, we got to get past that discomfort and be willing to tell them of a story in which God is a powerful redeemer for his people. You know, once we were dead in our sins and alone in our shame, and yet in that moment, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, and God has brought us into a new life. I think I'd be safe in this church saying God has renewed us as his people, right? Now, if you'll notice something about this sermon so far, it's, it's that I haven't mentioned one of the key figures, or very briefly mentioned one of the key figures in the story of our salvation. That, that's been intentional, and I hope you'll see why. Let's read in verse 19. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Did you see that? Buried in those verses is one of the most fundamental descriptors we have of Christ Jesus himself. I haven't used his name very much yet because the author, just like me, wanted to build up to it to this moment. The stone which the rest of the world says there's nothing special about that. that that's just a piece of junk or something that needs to be moved away. No, that is our cornerstone. Jesus is the strongest bedrock of our foundation that, that can carry the weight of everything we bring to him. And notice the use of the definite article there, the word the cornerstone, not a cornerstone, not a really good cornerstone, not the best cornerstone, the cornerstone. That's a struggle for all of us, right? To build our hopes and dreams on something other than Christ. But, but when we fail to do that, we're starting out with a foundation problem. So when, whenever I was first asked to preach, I, I wanted to lean on the first sermon that I ever preached, which was 1 Peter 2, 1 to 12, which has come up several times, this idea that we are living stones built on the cornerstone that was rejected. And, you know, isn't the Holy Spirit great? He said, actually, just go to the front side of that cornerstone and show this church who Jesus is. Now, I want to make sure we're all on the same page when we talk about Jesus and say that he is the cornerstone. When you read in verse 20 about people being declared as righteous, and then the one who answered us by becoming our salvation, this is a clear foreshadowing of the work of Jesus on the cross. Jesus came to earth in human form. He lived a perfect life that none of us could have lived, and he died on a cross, bearing the punishment of you and me and others in order to satisfy God's righteous anger against sin. I know that might be something you've heard once or a thousand times, but you know what? Those are the facts that we need to know and agree to and trust in in order to be called Christians. 
And that should change us. Like I said before, God's people are the one who marvel at the work God has done in their life, and then they rejoice in it, and then they're willing to share the good news with anyone who's within earshot. And I've waited until one other point to show another thing. If you haven't already picked up over it, just scan over all the verses we've gone over and see just how many of them use the word God or Lord in them. By my count, kind of depending on your English translation, uh, there are at least 24 of 29 verses that use one of these two designations for who exactly it is we worship. Obviously, the word Lord is much more prevalent, but the thing to remember when we pick up this psalm or when we pick up any psalm or when we pick up our Bibles, period, is that the Bible we hold is fundamentally a book about God. It is given by God to the people of God so that man and God can be in proper relationship with one another. So often when we're in a hard or difficult situation, like many of us have probably felt this week, it, it's easy to you know, have this idea of like, I should probably read my Bible or I should probably pray, right? And, and, and that's, that's definitely right, and, and I don't want to discourage that, but I want to offer just a cautious reminder so much of, of modern biblical critique and interpretation asks lots of questions like, what do you think of this? Or, or how does this apply to you? But if we believe that the Bible is truly a book about God first, then our first questions always need to be re- revolving around God. Why do we praise him? What, what actions is he showing here in this story? How did he not only reveal himself to be righteous, but a kind and loving Savior? How is God a good father in this passage? How is Jesus the hero of our story in this verse? These are the kinds of questions that we need to start continually asking ourselves whenever we approach the Scriptures. And that leads to one other just pastoral concern whenever it talks about how we approach the Bible. You know, this kind of God-centered approach to Bible reading and Bible study is, is by and large most effective when we do it in a regular, rhythmic pattern, day in and day out. One of the major concerns of Christian leaders today it should be the fact that we aren't in our Bibles nearly as much as Christians of other historical eras. You know, to, to be proactive in dealing with our stressful moments and, and our moments of fear means we need to be, you know, prepared and be deeply saturated in Scripture. You know, rather, in, rather than waiting until that moment where it feels like we're covered in fire ants or bees are surrounding us, we need to be a people of God's Word. You know, that, that, that's, that was the story of the Bereans in Acts 17, who had a reputation of always knowing the Scriptures, always searching the Scriptures and testing what they were hearing, the ideas and philosophies by the truth that is found in the Scriptures. My, my prayer for this church and for my church and, and for the capital C church in general is that we would be so Scripture-saturated and Scripture-shaped that we could better handle the moments that would otherwise overwhelm us. This is kind of a shift in focus for many churchgoers today who, who would otherwise respond to a stressful incident by opening a Bible, finding the ver- first verse that offers a little bit of encouragement, closing their Bible, and going on with the rest of their day. No, no, no. Th- that sort of kind of Facebook post approach to the Bible is not deep enough for a world that is permeated by sin at every level. We need to be deep in our Bibles because our Bibles, God's Word, God Himself can withstand what we cannot on our own. All right, it's uh, getting close. It's kind of time to land the plane. But, well, honestly, like, the, the, the best way to describe this, I mean, you can see here, this isn't landing the plane. It, it's a crescendo. It's a building thing. The, the psalmist is just building and building upon a mixture of praise and recounting the Lord's redemption and salvation through the cornerstone. And look at the result. It's beautiful. It, it's worship, pure in devotion to God. Look what he has to say in verse 25. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. 
Blessed is he who comes in the, in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. When we pray to God for success, just to be clear, we're not asking for some sort of kind of health and wealth success so that so many people think reflects God's favor in our lives. No, 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 no. We already have God's favor, so the success we're seeking is prospering as God would intend, as God would want for his people. We live lives centered around our relationship with him. And, and look, you see, we live lives together, not apart. You see how he's gone from focusing kind of on himself to, to focusing on a group of people, of God's people together? You know, what else? We're to bless those people. We're, we're to care for them. We're to love for them. Those who come in the name of the Lord, not in the name of our preferred people group, not in the name of our political affiliations, those who come in the name of the Lord of God himself. Again, that is the greatest common denominator any people can share, calling upon the Lord who saved them through the work done at Calvary. We are to love people with whom we might literally have nothing else in common because we share a common Savior, a common Father. That's how strangers become brothers and sisters in Christ alone. And then as we wrap up this morning, you know, we've been acknowledging that there are hurts here this week. There are hurts in this area this week. There are hurts around the globe this week. You know, we're not unrealistic about those pains and emotions we might be going through. And, and I, I'm not going to try to pretend that they aren't real or they aren't important. But church, my brothers and sisters, my, my prayer for myself, for each of you, and my prayer for Christians here in Texas and around the world as they face their t- toughest moments is to be just like the psalmist here as he wraps up. His words are going to end our time here, not my own. Let our hearts be so centered on God our Lord, on, on Jesus our Savior, and the Spirit our Helper that we cannot help but worship God no matter our situation. His promises, His love, His, his hesed, the steadfast love, they endure forever, and they will not diminish or change because our God never diminishes or changes. Hear these final words of the psalm and remember them, for they are a beautiful truth for his people. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. (laughs) 